You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Leary. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. So, g'day everybody. Welcome to The Vet Chat. Uh, we've got a, a, I suppose, a special edition, a kind of bonus episode today, um, where, yes, there's been a, a bit of publicity about a certain nasty little virus circulating around um, Southeast Asia um, at the moment, and, and uh, it seems like it's, uh, it's decided to backpack through Bali. And it's come to the attention of quite a few people. It's actually, it's interesting. For once, uh, it's it's an unusual situation, I guess, that as as the vet profession and the in the farming industry, that uh, something that affects us so much is is front and center of the national news. And and we have the the prime minister actually giving a talk about it uh, at a press conference and that sort of thing. So for us, um, the the idea of today is, uh, I'm sure that. There's plenty of vets out there just perhaps wanting some reassurance, perhaps wanting to just um, remind themselves of some of the things that they might have learned a long time ago that that they need to try and have at the at the top of their mind if they if they can. So we've got a, a very special guest today. We've got the chief veterinary officer of MPI, Mary Van Andel. So yeah, welcome along, Mary. Hi, Matt. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. It's our pleasure. Um, so just to, I suppose, for those that, that don't know you, uh, I guess the, the the Chief Veterinary Officer role is actually a relatively new role anyway, isn't it? Um, so you've been in there for, what, almost a year or so? That's right, Matt. So about a decade ago, New Zealand had a Chief Veterinary Officer, um, and that role's been reinstated in the last year, and I'm um, filling that role at the moment. Right. Cool. Um, and you, I'm sure the listeners have picked up. There's a there's a little bit of a South African um, uh, accent coming through. So you're obviously that's that's where you originate from. Um, that's right. So yeah, educated yes. at the University of Pretoria, I think. And yes, the Faculty of Veterinary Science at Honestaport, um, and uh, been in New Zealand for about 12 years though. Right. And working for the ministry um, for most of that time probably not doing yourself a heck of a lot of justice there. You've sort of worked your way up the ranks and done sort of a, a PhD in epidemiology and you're a specialist in, in uh, well, you, you've been doing uh, incursion investigations and that type of thing for in that time. So you're very, very well qualified to, to talk about this topic, I guess. I couldn't think of anybody really who would be more qualified to talk about it. So so um, yeah, shall we, shall we jump in? I mean, I guess the fact that Foot and mouth diseases in Bali for what the first time in forty years or so is is I guess it's elevated, it's brought things into people's consciousness a little bit more. But in 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 real terms, I mean, what what does it mean for you? I suppose at MPI, what does it actually you know how much extra risk does it really represent to you? That's a great question. Thanks, Matt. And uh, a lot of people are asking this, and um, I think what we are really clear about is that, you know, uh, foot and mouth disease has been circulating in much of the animal population of the world um, for a very long time. So according to the World Organization for Animal Health, about 77% of animals um, live in countries with endemic foot and mouth disease, mm. right? So so that's most of them. Um, and, uh, you know, our other close um, 
neighbours in Southeast Asia do have foot and mouth disease, but yes, you're quite right, Indonesia has not had an outbreak of foot and mouth disease for the past three decades, so for 30 years. And so that is obviously a, a, a stark reminder to us um, to remain vigilant. So, you know, um, although we don't think that the risk has significantly changed, um, you know, it's a, it's a good reminder and we should all be doing everything we can to keep foot and mouth disease out of New Zealand. Um, and we have some really strong layers of protection in place that help us to keep doing that. Yeah, so so I suppose the, yeah, perhaps the, the hypothetical risk, maybe it's just that it's come a bit more into people's consciousness. I mean, there's a lot of people that sort of holiday in, in Bali, but um, I suppose fortunately for us, uh, it's not quite as direct a pathway from Bali to New Zealand as it is from Bali to Australia, for example. I mean, that might be something to, <laughs> to talk about, that the risk is probably a bit higher um, for Australia. And then potentially, I suppose, there's an indirect risk to New Zealand if it, if it jumps into Australia, which would be a bit more concerning. But um, but yeah, I mean, plenty of us go on holiday to, to other um, countries that have got um, endemic foot and mouth disease. So, so you're right, I mean, in real terms, perhaps it doesn't change the risk greatly, but it certainly makes people a lot more aware, which is not a bad thing, perhaps. That's right, Matt. I totally agree with you. Um, so I guess there's two things that, that I talk about there. Um, with the uh, change in risk in Bali, you know, we have no direct flights from Indonesia to New Zealand at the moment. Um, we have a particular targeting of travellers coming from Indonesia into New Zealand um, with additional questioning for, for those people, uh, checking luggage, checking shoes, disinfecting shoes, both being worn and in the baggage. Um, and also people probably know, or perhaps not, that we have 100% x-ray of all hand carry luggage and also all uh, check-in luggage in New Zealand. And that's not something that any other country um, or that most countries have. Um, people who've been through or entered New Zealand um, will remember, <laughs> or if you've been lucky enough to travel recently, will have experienced that, you know, there are a lot of contacts with frontline biosecurity staff, lots of questions, and also the detector dogs who work at the border. So we do have um, a bunch of layers of protection in place here. Um, and, you know, so, so biosecurity is kind of, I, I think, a spectrum. It starts um, offshore for us with import health standards that stop risk goods from coming into New Zealand. So, you know, there were, there were rules about importing live animals or um, animal products into New Zealand for this very reason. And then there are all the layers of biosecurity at the border on the passenger pathway, on the mail pathway, and on the container pathway. So, so lots of... Um, you know, I think all colleagues will be familiar with the kind of Swiss cheese model where, you know, no single mitigation is perfect, but if you line up all these layers, then we're able to reduce the risk um, over all these sequential interventions. From what I understand, the, the risk of, of uh, getting in on somebody's shoes, for example, is probably not that high. Um, it's some of the other the other pathways that are probably still more of a risk, I guess, things that we're perhaps still more concerned about. That be fair? Yeah. So I think our analysis in the past has been that you know the most likely of these kind of low risk pathways um, would be the illegal import of meat products into New Zealand. Mm. Right. Um, I think what we are um, conscious of all of us is that when there is a huge impact 
from a disease getting into a country, then we want to do everything we can to stop it from getting in. And I think some of these measures about um, you know, passenger effects and shoes, it makes sense for us to be careful, um, but I think we need to keep those in perspective. What we really want is for people to be mindful of their contacts overseas. If you are visiting farms, if you are in contact with animals, everything does need to be cleaned very thoroughly. Um, we wouldn't be expecting you know, that people would take any risks with bringing back dirty clothes or equipment. All those things obviously we can't do. Um, and even though those pathways are quite low risk, we really want them to be mitigated as much as possible. Yeah, yeah, and I think as vets, we're all very conscious of that. It's just uh, mm -hmm. perhaps the the general public. Yeah, it's good to good to keep reminding them of that too, I suppose. And and we have a role, I guess, as vets and and doing that. You know, vets in the field um, and reminding people of that kind of thing as well. So so it's good to good to make sure everybody's sort of got that still front of mind. It's a little bit like this sort of plane crash sort of situation, isn't it? The likelihood is is very very low, but the consequences are massive. Um, right. And I guess that's why it sort of makes the news and, and, you know, there's so much publicity around these things. And, and I'd probably liken, yeah, perhaps, and, and maybe the risk hasn't changed that greatly, but, but a, a, a sort of analogy on the plane crash um, uh, way of looking at it would be that perhaps somebody um, tells you before you get on a plane that um, it's missed its last two maintenance, um, you know, sort of bookings and... and Therefore, you're five times more likely to crash in that plane, and you would go, "Crikey, that's that's terrible!" But that actually that means that instead of a one in ten million chance, it's a one in two million chance, for example. You know, so so there's still still perhaps potentially the risk might have gone up very slightly um, with what's happening in Bali, but it's still a very low risk that we and all the mm. same things that we're doing are still um, are still there. But, but in terms of putting putting numbers to it, I mean, there are some scary numbers get floated around if things do go wrong, aren't there? That's right. In terms of the impact on New Zealand, certainly those would be enormous, Matt. Um, and for that reason, as you've said, we want to remain really vigilant and really careful um, and keep looking out for things um, and, and reporting them and keep having conversations about these risks, right? So it's yeah, really important yeah, yeah. for us to keep doing that. Mm. Absolutely. So that's sort of part of the role of what vets actually need to do, I guess. Uh, so we're, we're that sort of, um, well, I'll use the royal we here, um, so um, as a non-practicing vet, but, you know, the clinical vets out there, they're, they're sort of that first line of defense. I mean, if, if anything does happen, um, if, the, if the worst was to happen, and this is a good reminder of just exotic disease in general, whether it be foot and mouth or anything, that, that if anything does come into New Zealand, they're going to be the first ones who will see it, or, well, they'll be called by, by a farmer who might be the first, but they're going to be probably the first ones to report it. So... So I suppose, you know, there's, there's potentially a few vets going, well, what if I'm the one who misses it? You know, so, so I suppose, what, what do they need to know? I mean, what, are they, mm. what, do, what do we all need to be thinking about if we're out there in, in the field and, and a little bit concerned about this? Such a great question. So, Matt, we've got the um, exotic pest and disease hotline at the mm. at the Ministry for Primary Industries, and that number is the 08, we call it the 0800 number. It's 0800 80 99 66, and that number is manned um, 24 7, and it's manned by a team of um, 
veterinary epidemiologists and investigators. And, you know, they're really, really good people to talk to. You don't only have to ring them if you suspect something. You can just ring them if you want to discuss something. Mm. So it's not a really formal way of reporting. It's more, think of it like a helpline where you can ask somebody who's seen these diseases in real life um, and who knows kind of has, has the, the resources and the capacity and capability for testing for diseases that we don't have in New Zealand at their fingertips, you can ring them up and ask them any time about a disease, that a, a case that you've seen. Um, you can send them photographs from your mobile. You can show them a video. Mm. Um, and they're, they're there to take those calls and, and to talk to people and to talk to colleagues about weird cases that they're seeing. So I guess the first thing for me is to have a really low bar for reporting things that you yep. feel concerned about that don't feel right to you. Mm. And, you know, that's not going to result in anything um, frightening. You're going to have a chat to a, another veterinary colleague. Um, most of these, or all of these vets have been in, in private practice mm. and have had clients and really aware of the kind of difficulty, difficult client relationships that you know, can result. So really want to focus on working with colleagues in the field to make sure that we get the best outcome for farmers um, and, and for, for private practice colleagues. I think that, you know, you might feel like ringing the 0800 number is stressful, but as you've alluded to, it's not as stressful mm. as not diagnosing an exotic disease. So, yeah. so seek out that bit mm. of assurance um, yes. and, and make a call to, to those guys. Um, so that's the first thing. Yeah. Um, the second thing that I think I'd like to talk about is kind of the role of the trusted advisor that private veterinarians have with their farming, mm. with their farmers. Mm. And I, I know that, and, and this is from um, surveys that, that we've done and, and questions that we've asked that farmers really respect the views of their veterinarians. They really care about what their veterinarians think. They trust them and they know that they've got the health of their herd and their businesses at heart. Um, and so, you know, you the, all of our private practice colleagues and all of us have something really important that we can do and we can talk about good on-farm biosecurity yeah. practices because as you've talked about, risk is always out there. It could be small, mm. but there are things that we can do to make the spread of disease slower um, should it be there. And those are things like limiting animal movements, not splitting and mixing lots of things, mm. making sure that animal movements are recorded, um, making sure that people know that, you know, feeding... Um, swill to pigs and those kinds of things with meat in it, that all those things are not, not good biosecurity practices and that those are uh, rules that we talk about for a reason. Mm. Um, and mm. so I think that veterinary colleagues do definitely have some things that they contribute in, in that space in terms of being trusted advisors for the farming community. Yeah, yeah. Um, we do actually have quite an important role to, to kind of remind and reassure and and. Yeah, you know, I, I think at the moment, um, probably a lot of farmers, I'm sure, you know, just myself having having gone and spoken to a, a group of um, at a young farmers evening, um, it didn't take long for barley to come into the conversation. Um, so mm -hmm. I'm sure most of the vets who are listening have have uh, been asked a bit, and and it is important that you give some good reassuring sort of advice. And um, and yeah, and, and and back on your previous point about calling the hotline um you know i've i've done it i've done it when i was in practice um and you're right it was absolutely it was a it was a very it was just a collegial discussion um we we went through the process uh i think from memory i think it 
ended up being a malignant catarrhal fever, I think. Um, but, you know, I just sort of had some mouth lesions and some foot lesions and I just sort of went, oh, crikey, you know. And, and I know, and I actually remember another time um, where <clears throat> a little bit earlier actually in my career where I'd seen something and didn't like the look of it and didn't call and actually lost sleep after it, you know, and <laughs> thought I should have called. So so I, I've been on both sides of it, and I know, you know, and I think having been through the process of ringing somebody, you're right. I mean, it's just a, it's not a stressful thing. It's not, it's not like you're, you're um, uh, reporting somebody, you know, it's, it's, uh, and it's a, the people who are on the end of the phone were really, really good to deal with. So, so absolutely, you know, yeah. I can I can certainly vouch for that. Um, you you're not going to regret calling. You're going to regret not calling. So, um, Thanks, but Matt. but as you say, I mean, it, it is other diseases too. I mean, you know, we we have Absolutely. had yeah, and we've had a couple of incursions in the last sort of ten years or so. Obviously, Mycoplasma bovis, pretty obvious one. Um, Tyleria. Mm. Um, mm. You know, it's only only ten twelve years ago that Tyleria came in, or maybe even less than that. So. So yeah, and and if there's one thing, perhaps uh, I remember a um, a lecturer. In fact, it might have been the dean of the the veterinary college um, when when I when, when I did my training, um, saying that uh, I think everybody's got that little fear that they might miss it, you know, that they that they won't see it. Um, and he said to us, and I I remember this very clearly actually. He said, "You will actually have a, a practitioner's sense very quickly." And when mm. you see something that's not right, alarm bells go off, you know, you, mm. and, and you don't even, you perhaps don't even realize that you've got it, but you'll recognize when something's different. Yeah. And I think that's, that's one of the other things that I've, I've been saying to people, you know, there are um, the, the private veterinarians um, out there all over New Zealand are, are, are seeing the, the national herd every day mm. and, and they are experienced in what's normal mm. um, for their region and for the type of species that they're, they're seeing. So, yeah, if they um, trust their experience and their skills and um, also, you know, ring in when they're unsure, ask colleagues, talk about cases, um, that's, that's a huge um, line of defence mm. for New Zealand in, mm, in, yeah. in case of any exotic diseases. Yep, yep. And I'm sure we're all very well aware of what the symptoms of, of um, foot and mouth are. Probably everybody's jumped on Wikipedia or, or watched a YouTube video just to, just to remind themselves. But, but effectively, the, um, what, what we're probably likely to see in New Zealand, would, I would think, would probably be cattle. Um, I where think we might so. first detect it. Um, might mm. not be where it first comes in. But perhaps That's right. We'd be extremely, extremely fortunate to um, find the first case right mm. so that would be um you know we could hope to do that we would obviously be making the time from incursion to detection mm. as short as possible is one of the main objectives that we can have with any exotic disease and especially something that moves as fast as foot and mouth but as you've pointed out matt the most um you know typically animals who get seen really often like dairy cattle mm. um and who do have fulminant clinical signs like cattle um, are the ones that that get picked up first um, things like sheep and goats don't have very uh, clear clinical signs at all and then pigs um, do have clinical signs and they can amplify the virus quite significantly mm. but I'm sure these are things that people remember but in case you uh, want to have a look at a refresher um, perhaps we can put a link to the um, surveillance page for vets in the in the show notes Matt. Mm. 
great idea actually. Yeah, we'll have to figure out how to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, um, and there are, yeah, there's there's really good resources. It's a very good point. There's resources um, with MPI and NZVA is sharing a lot of resources too. So there are plenty of places you can go to look at those sort of things. So, so yeah. Um, I mean, speaking of, of the, the communication with farmers, just sort of coming back to that, uh, there are a lot of questions that farmers are, are going to be asking. Um, so, and I, I gather you've had a few come directly to MPI. Um, any, anything, any trends, anything in particular that seems to be coming up that would be good to, to share? Sure. So, I mean, I guess um, I think people are asking things that uh, that any sensible person would ask if they aren't an expert in one of these these fields, right? And so, and especially because of you know we've had two. Um, big impacts uh, yeah. in the last couple of years. We've had COVID, and that's been obviously really given us kind of a different lens. All of yeah. us, all all humans, it's given us a different lens on on um, infectious diseases. Mm. Um, and, and there and are some parallels, aren't there? I mean, in, there in a are way, you some, know, it's yeah. both highly infectious, um, viral, you know, high, high morbidity, mm. low mortality. Um, that's right. You know, but um, and and really. And the, the herd effects probably outweigh the individual um, to yes. some extent in both cases too. So so yeah, I mean there are there are some some comparisons. So, yeah. but I think what's really um, can be a little bit confusing in this in this type of comparison is that some of the things that were um, things that we would intuitively do for COVID, like for example vaccinating everybody before we got it, that's not something that we can do for foot and mouth disease. Yes. Um, the reason for that is that you know, there's a lot of strains. We would only vaccinate once we had disease in the country. We would need to type that strain to make sure that we got the vaccine matched. And then we would import that vaccine from our vaccine bank um, in the UK. So we're in COVID. We were trying to vaccinate everybody before we got it. With foot and mouth disease, we're not going to be vaccinating unless in the event of an outbreak. Mm. And um, that's not necessarily intuitive uh, to everyone. Yeah. But yeah, but that's that's kind of really important uh, difference to draw. And we've certainly had a lot of questions about why we aren't proactively vaccinating. Mm. Um, sure. Yeah, so, so that's one that I guess we're picking up. The other one, the other piece of like big lot of media interest that I think has come across people's um, inboxes and people's screens and has been the kind of news that Australia detected fragments yes. of virus in animal products or not mm. animal products apologies in in food products right mm. and they detected it in pork floss which is a highly processed kind of deep fried type of food item um, and I guess the thing that's I think that that I've talked about a lot in this space um, and which is something that I'm sure Fritz already knows, that being able to detect a virus doesn't mean that that virus is active or able to infect yes. other animals, yeah. right? And so I think there's something about being mindful about what we test and how we think about those test results. And so there was the, the big media in Australia about detecting foot and mouth disease virus in, in food products, which was followed up quite quickly with... Um, explainers kind of on, oh, it was viral fragments, they weren't infectious, um, you know, might have been something that could have been expected. But yeah, so just to kind of give some assurance about that, um, the difference between being able to detect a virus and virus being able to infect something something we need to give some thought to that. Mm -hmm. I don't imagine we bring a lot of pork floss 
into New Zealand is as delicious as it sounds, but uh, uh, we probably wouldn't bring that sort of thing in anyway, would we? Well, there are import health standards for yeah. processed food goods, right? Processed and so that's is kind of yeah. Food, I guess. And yeah. so the yeah. thing is about it being highly processed. Yeah. The fact that you could detect viral fragments in it doesn't mean that those are a risk. And so I think that we just need to. Um, kind of put our mind back to what the input health standards for food do. Yep. They make sure that no unprocessed products are able to come into New Zealand from a country with foot and mouth disease. And that's still in place. Mm, yeah. Mm. The other one that's probably popped into, and in fact I saw it in the, in the uh, mainstream news recently, was palm kernel, PKE. So, yep. yeah, and that's a, a theoretical area of risk, I suppose, and I'm sure there's a, it's coming up a little bit in conversations maybe with some of the farmers out there. Any, any comments sure. on that? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, as everybody knows, we, we import um, a bunch of palm kernel expeller mm. from Southeast Asia. Some of it comes from Indonesia. Some of it comes from other countries, including Malaysia. Our input health standard for palm kernel, for PKE, um, is at a very high standard. It's actually at all of the PKE that comes into New Zealand is at a standard for a country that has FMD, right? And so even before Indonesia got FMD, it was complying with the standard of import of PKE that would be appropriate for um, a country that had okay. FMD. So we were assuming what we have that it done, had it until proven otherwise. Sort of thing. That's yeah. right, because you know it's it's difficult with these archipelagos of islands mm. with lots of um, kind of small scale subsistence farming, lots mm. of wildlife moving around. Really hard to say that you definitely don't have something, right? Mm. So we were already being very cautious. What we have done since um, the outbreak was announced to the World Organization for Animal Health is actually um, send some of our auditors in person to have a look at that pathway um, and to have a look at the processing plants in Indonesia and understand exactly how those look. Um, most of those plants, our auditors have told me, are in built-up areas, so they're not mm. in contact with... Um, feral wild animals or domestic animals. Also, the treatment to make PKE is a high heat treatment. Mm. So that would also ask. be yeah. yep, mm. something that would deactivate the virus. Mm. And then, you know, I think we need to think about layers again. So there's how you process PKE to make animal feed. Then there's the, um, it goes onto a boat. The boat gets fumigated. Mm. It goes on a long sea journey, mm. and then it arrives here and gets checked as the usual kind of offloading of tank of um, containers. Mm. And so there's a several layers of protection there as well mm. um, for this very low risk pathway. Right. Um, yeah. So so understand why people are concerned about that, but based on our checks and uh, the standards that are in place, mm. this risk should not have changed. Yeah, and, and as you say, we've, we've actually been bringing palm kernel in from places that have foot and mouth for well the whole time that we've actually been importing it. So so that risk has been managed very well for 20-something years. So yeah. That's right. And I think, you know, people are always, when something changes, it's yeah. it's mm. a good practice to, to go and check, right? Mm. Absolutely. Um, and to yeah. have a look and to make sure that it's happening the way you thought it was. And um, that's something we can report back on and say, yep, everything in place, looks good, um, still need to remain vigilant, still need to keep looking out for those clinical signs that people feel un un unhappy about. So, yeah, the I guess 
I, mean, I, I feel quite reassured. I mean, the risk is the risk is low. Um, you know, there are pathways there. I mean, you can see there are pathways there, but they've always been pathways there. And we've got. Um, I like the Swiss cheese um, analogy um, that there's enough checks and balances are, um, along the way to to really lower that risk to very very low levels but let's just hypothetically say that it does go wrong and it does crop up somewhere in New Zealand um, so I mean what would it what would it look like when it when it uh, when an outbreak actually or when it when a case first happens in, in New Zealand what would mm. the response look like okay so that's a great question so let's play it out from the point where somebody who feels really uneasy about a clinical case rings the 0800 number. So what happens then? So ring the 0800 number, an incursion investigator takes that call, uh, talks to them about what they're seeing. Obviously, this sounds like something that's gone badly wrong um, and we're all worried about it. What happens next is that that incursion investigator will send an initial investigating veterinarian, an IIV, to that farm um, to to have a look at those animals. So these IIVs are veterinarians who are in private practice um, across New Zealand, and they have actually had some additional training, and um, that they've been often they've been overseas to have a look at foot and mouth disease um, and other exotic diseases um, in countries that have them. They also catch up with colleagues from the um, incursion investigation team, and they're kind of got some increased um, skills and capabilities for diagnosing and assessing um, exotic disease outbreaks. So yeah. one of these IIVs will yep. be able to get to the farm within, um, you know, I think it's four to six hours to have a look at those animals. They'll have a look at it, and if they still feel uncomfortable, mm -hmm. they will call back to the laboratory at Wallaceville and to the incursion investigation team, and sampling will happen. So that at that point, we'll say this case is not negative, so we're not saying it's positive, but we can't rule it out just by us having a look and we can't be comfortable about it, so we'll get some samples. And at that point, depending on how it looks, probably have some kind of movement restrictions on that property, right? So if we're worried enough to do that, we want to make sure that we're not exposing anybody else in the population to risk. At the same time as that happens, um, we'd be, you know, having a look at those uh, that farm's NATE records, ha having a look if we could find out anything, talking to the farmer, understanding how those risk pathways and profiles look. Um, the samples would go back to the Wallaceville Laboratory um, for testing, and if those are negative, then obviously that stood down. Um, if those are positive, then um, then everything starts to kind of kick off mm. yeah so yeah. what would need to happen then was that those samples would be sent overseas to get well those would be sent to the world reference laboratory for sequencing because we'd want to do that vaccine matching that we re referenced mm. earlier mm. Um, but in New Zealand what would happen would there be a, there would be a you know we'd want to make sure that all spread was um, that there was no other spread going on hmm. while we wasted yep. um, and while we dealt with this farm. So there would be a national livestock standstill. So people wouldn't be moving animals um, for a short time. <laughs> yeah. Um, although not, you know, this is about things that could create risk of spread. And for COVID, that was humans. Um, and for FMD, that's, you know, for the most part, live animals in yeah. this 
yeah, but but you're quite right. For that farm with the restricted place notice or the movement controls where we think the disease is, there would be a kind of much stricter set of rules about um, product going off, things, people going on and off. Um, you know, we would need the veterinarian to come off in a biosecure way. Um, these kind of things would need to be arranged. We, at all costs, don't want to be spreading disease further than it is. That initial lockdown, um, well not lockdown, but that initial <laughs> period of stopping Sorry animal movements, <laughs> you've put it in my mind now, um, that initial period of stopping animal movements gives us a, a little time to understand what the spread of disease already is in New Zealand, right? Because as we talked about previously, we'd be extremely lucky to find the first case. Yeah. Probably we're finding a case that's been infected by someone else. So we need to look upstream at backtracing and downstream at forward tracing to understand the extent of what we're looking at. And then we would need to start putting in um, surveillance zones around those properties so that we can look at the neighboring farms. We would need to put in protection zones and a controlled area. And, and you know, the, the, the first response is to um, stop animal movements and then to shrink that area as quickly as possible so that normal farming practices and, and everything can resume. Because as you can imagine, stopping animals from moving um, for any length of time has enormous knock-on effects. Mm. So what you're describing actually sounds quite similar to the mycoplasma bovis response, but on speed, you know, happening, That's happening right. very quickly. So, so you've right. sort of almost had a dummy run of sorts, haven't you, I, I guess you could say. Yes, and so I think disease control plays out by some quite well-defined principles. I like to explain it as... Um, you know, it's kind of like running on a treadmill. The speed of the treadmill is the speed of the disease, and how fast you run is how good you are at operations, mm. right? And so what you get, and what we saw with COVID, for example, with the lockdowns, um, was that we stopped the treadmill. Mm. We stopped the disease from spreading. But what we'll have here is we'll be able to stop the treadmill for a short time, and we'll be able to catch up a little bit and mm. look where the disease is, and then you shrink the area that you're stopping and you do operations in that space to get in front of disease spread. Because really, as an epidemiologist, as I like to remind people, what we're trying to accomplish is that each farm infects, does not infect one more farm. Yes, keep the right? eye below one. Yeah. That's right. And mm. so then we'll be able to go down the other side of the epidemic curve. Mm. And so you're right. It's the same principles, oh. but this happens immensely quickly. I think um, I think veterinary epidemiologists are, are mostly yeah. agreed that this is one of the fastest things that we have to um, respond to. It spreads immensely quickly. Um, when there are infected farms in a country, the amount of virus that gets into the environment means that it can spread on fomites, um, and that means that you know to to get that initial control. And that first 72 hours, those first few days after after it's found for the first time are extremely important. Mm. And just uh, to come back a little bit to the vaccination, I mean, that that is potentially where that plays a role. I mean, I, I remember I was actually in the UK when the, when the outbreak happened in the early 2000s. And, mm -hmm. and if I remember rightly, I think um, there was a, a small cluster that happened in, in Holland, in the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. um, as well, and they, they I think vaccinated a, a buffer zone around that cluster, and then slaughtered all the vaccinated animals um, as their yes. way of responding. So, so there may be tools like that used as well. 
Absolutely. And so we talked about New Zealand's vaccine bank. Mm. Um, and the purpose of that was once there's a vaccine match, then the vaccine doses will arrive in New Zealand. And depending on what we have learned about the outbreak that we're dealing with, there'll be a vaccine tactic that will be deployed. And so you can either kind of um, do a do a, do a a ring buffer around the area that you see. You can decide to do vaccinating from the outside inwards or from the inside outwards. There are also some choices to be made about, you know, um, if you would vaccinate those animals and then immediately remove them from the population, as you referenced with Holland, or if you would leave them for a little bit longer. But one of the things to remember about vaccinating for these animal diseases, especially where <laughs> we have official statuses from the World Organization for Animal Health, is that some of these things are tied up in those official statuses. And so being free from foot and mouth disease with the World Organization for Animal Health without vaccination is kind of the status we have now. And some of our agreements with trading partners um, rely on that status. So there are some things to think about in terms of if you would remove those vaccinated animals from the population and the timing of that, that makes a big difference to us returning to a kind of, to our previous trade agreements. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So, just interesting. Of course, you've got all the the um, the vets who are in our midst, I suppose, who are going to respond to this. So, there's uh, mm -hmm. most and potentially, I think a lot of people are probably working with one and maybe not even aware that they are. That there's actually like a little sort of superhero costume underneath the overalls kind of <laughs> kind of thing. But, uh, a long time ago, I was one of those actually. Um, I, I didn't get sent to we'll the We'll call got, you up, Matt. Well, if you if you have to, yeah, you're scraping the bottom of the barrel if you're having to get me. I'll, I'll have to get the cobwebs out of the gumboots, I think. But um, And I didn't get sent. I never saw foot and mouth. I, I didn't get to Nepal. I went to Palmerston North, I think. So, so, oh, no. <laughs> so yeah. But, but but yes, there is. There's a there's a pool of vets who are who are ready to respond, which is actually quite a cool thing to know too. That um, you know, and you may be working with one of them and not even aware. So. Yes, and yeah. I would love for people to talk to their colleagues that they're working with about, you know, if there are people who have um, worked in foot and mouth in the UK or other countries even. I know that, um, you know, it's not limited to production animal or mixed animal vets. That I know lots of small animal vets who uh, worked in FMD in the UK. Um, and also talk to your colleagues and see if, you, if any of them have done the IIV training, right? So that's also something people don't, maybe talk about that a lot and I'd also like everyone to remember that you know you actually um, deal with infectious diseases on farms all the time um, and so you already know things you know what's normal you know how to deal with infectious diseases and you know what good biosecurity on a farm looks like um, and so you already have a lot to contribute yeah it's quite a quite a nice summary I mean I think yeah that if there's any country in the world that can keep it out, it's New Zealand. Um, we're better prepared than anybody else to, or we've got better systems in place. Anybody who's crossed borders anywhere in the world will will know that you know, we've got the best systems in New Zealand for uh, for biosecurity. We're also probably better placed than anybody else to respond if it did get it. So in terms of reassurance, you know, I think I think the message is probably we've got this. Um, that uh, but be alert. And, and you know, stay calm, but but just just make sure you stay alert and trust your instincts, and and don't be afraid to to contact MPI if you if you see something you're not happy with. Yeah, I think that's a great summary, Matt. I think I, I don't want us to say we've got this. Um, you know, we we need to not be cocky. <laughs> okay. um, 
we've, yeah, we've almost we, got it. <laughs> but I think we'll get there. It will be a bad time, um, but we'll work together to get through it. And I think I think we're um, we're building those relationships. We're we're listening to each other. We're figuring out how we'll do this and how we'll have this. And we're not starting from scratch. You're quite right. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah, which is different from COVID too, of course. That's right. Yeah, so, so it would play out differently. So no, that's that's great. Um, thank you so much, Mary. I think that's, that's really, that's helped a lot for me. Um, hopefully it's useful to the listeners but um, and yeah really appreciate your time I, I guess it's uh, it's very precious time right now so so yeah thank you very much thanks so much Matt thank you for having me and I'd really like to hear if people do have questions um, if they send them to you I'd really love to talk with you about them so mm. please um, cool yeah please do it yeah no, that's great Thanks for listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.